before we begin, let's pray. Father, thank you that we can sing those words. We can sing that no grave could contain your son. He's alive. He's alive. And it is a foretaste of our deliverance for all of those who are connected to him. We must be as he is. What a hope. What a promise. Lord, as we look at your word this morning, I pray that you would help us to see your son. And by seeing him in small measure to become more like him. Thank you that you reveal yourself in your word. It's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So last week, if you were with us in John chapter 6, in verses 1 through 15, you remember Jesus feeds at least 5,000 people on the mountain with two little, five little, two little fish, five little loaves of bread. Now, if you jump, so that, that ended in verse 15. If you jump over to verse 22, the people that Jesus fed are going to find him. And a conversation is going to happen between them about bread. And that's going to fill up the rest of chapter 6. But in verses 16 through 21, in the middle is this miracle. The crowds don't see it. Only the 12 disciples see this miracle, and it doesn't get mentioned again in the rest of the chapter. Jesus is going to walk on water. And the point of the miracle is to show us, to demonstrate again that Jesus is God. So that's the main point of this passage. Jesus is God. He's divine. So we're going to see, we're basically going to break this down into two parts. We're going to see how this miracle shows us that Jesus is God. And then we're going to apply the truth that Jesus is God to ourselves, particularly to our fears. That's how we're going to end it. So let's start by seeing how Jesus, in this passage, is revealing that he's God. Look at verses 16 through 17. It tells us this. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. They got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. So the disciples are on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. That's where this miracle happened. They've come down, because they were on a mountain, they've come down to the sea, and they're getting into the boat without Jesus. Now, they're not abandoning Jesus. We know this because of the other gospel accounts. Jesus tells them, go on without me. And so that's what they're doing. Now, we don't know what the disciples were thinking. They may have thought, Jesus is going to catch a ride on another boat. Maybe Jesus is going to walk. It's not inconceivable that he would walk. It's not that far. It would have taken him all night, but he could have done it. They just knew he's not coming with them. So it's dark. We know it's night. Verse 17 tells us. And then verse 18 tells us that the wind is blowing and the water is rough. They've gone about three to four miles, which means, based on the size of the Sea of Galilee, They've got anywhere between a mile left to go and three miles left to go. And then they see Jesus. Look at verse 19. He's walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. Now, 
before we make fun of the disciples for this, this is super, super creepy. We know because we've read our Bibles, Jesus walks on water. If we saw someone walking on water, that would be our first thought. Oh, it's Jesus. They've never seen this before. They're in the dark, okay, so no lights. The wind is blowing, and they can tell in the distance that someone is coming towards them on the water with the right kind of creepy violin scratching. This is a horror movie. Really, if this was you, you would be scared. You'd start rowing a little bit faster. And that's what's happening to them. Verse 20, But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now, again, Jesus is not simply showing off. We say that a lot about the miracles, but he's not simply just trying to entertain them or simply showing them how powerful he is. If he wanted to do that, he could have flown overhead. He could have swam by them like a speedboat. That would have been impressive, but that's not what he does. Jesus was making a point, and the point he's making is this. I'm God. That's why he does this miracle. Now, I'm going to give three pieces of evidence that Jesus is doing this miracle to communicate that he's one with God. And by evidence, you know what I mean. If you're in court and you're either on the defense or you're the prosecution, you present evidence, pieces of evidence. When you put them all together, it shows this person's guilty or they're not guilty. So we're going to give three pieces of evidence to show that Jesus is telling the disciples that he's one with God. Here's piece of evidence number one. This requires supernatural power. So Hebrews 1.3 tells us that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Colossians 1.17 says he holds all things together, which means the entire natural universe is being held together by Jesus Christ. Everything, every subatomic particle, all atoms, all molecules, all chemical reactions, energy reactions, all nature, he's the one who's holding it together. So making liquid water a solid underneath every footstep is not hard for him. Water is wet because Jesus says it is. Now, someone could say, technically, water is wet because when two hydrogen atoms combine with an oxygen atom, the bonds of the molecules at, the certain, at a certain temperature have a low enough viscosity that it feels like liquid. That's true. Because Jesus says so. That's why. Water, when you turn on the faucet, you expect water to come out wet. And the reason is, you, the reason you expect it to come out wet instead of dry is because Jesus has been making water wet for a long time. And he continues to do it. 
He causes the natural universe, even down to the subatomic level, which means if he wants to walk on it, hydrogen and oxygen are not going to tell him that he can't. This is one piece of evidence that Jesus is God. It's not decisive evidence. It's not proof. This is not proof that Jesus is God. Prophets in the Old Testament, apostles in the New Testament do miracles by the power of God, and they're not claiming to be God. So a miracle by itself doesn't mean that you're God. But it's one piece of evidence. It's one piece. We need more. So here's piece of evidence number two. In verse 20, the way that Jesus says, it is I, is one way in the Old Testament that God identifies himself. So in Exodus, you know, Moses leaves Egypt. He's in the wilderness before anybody else. God appears to him in a burning bush and tells him, you've got to go back to Egypt and I'm going to use you to deliver the people of Israel from slavery. And in Exodus 3, you can turn there if you want. You don't have to, so I'm going to read it. Starting in verse 13, Moses says this to God. He says, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. That's a strange way to answer Moses, isn't it? When God says, I am, he's communicating to Moses, I exist. If you want to talk about why everything exists, it's because of me. Nothing makes me exist. I am. I simply am. You tell the people, if they ask who sent you, tell them, I am sent you. The name Yahweh, have you ever heard that before? Hebrew, Yahweh. It's the name of God in the Old Testament. If you're reading your Old Testament in English, and you see the word Lord in capital letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord, they're translating the Hebrew name of God, Yahweh, which comes from the Hebrew word, I am, to be. That's where we get the name Yahweh. Is everyone following me? You're going to have to follow some more. I'm sorry. Eventually, okay, the Old Testament is translated into Greek, when Jesus is walking around in Galilee, people have the Bible in Greek. The world was united in some ways by the Greek language, even though the Romans were ruling. In the Greek translation of Exodus, Exodus was written in Hebrew, it's translated into Greek. In Exodus 3.14, when God says to Moses, I am who I am, that first part, I am, is translated into Greek, you don't have to remember this, ego imi. Ego imi. It's two words. I am. And those are the same words Jesus uses when he approaches the boat. He says, ego imi. Now, this is how God identifies himself. 
but it's also the Greek way that you would say, it's me. So Jesus could be approaching the boat and saying, I am, do not be afraid. Or he could be saying, guys, it's me. Don't be afraid. And that's why this piece of evidence is also not decisive. This is not proof. It's just a piece of evidence. Jesus could be saying, guys, calm down. It's me. However, as we move through the Gospel of John, especially when we get to chapter 8, Jesus is going to keep saying these two words, ego imi, and he's going to keep using them in such a way that it becomes less and less clear that he's saying, it's me, and it becomes more and more clear that he's claiming to be God. If you want to look at a few texts, you can write these down. I'm not going to read them, but chapter 8, verse 24, chapter 8, verse 28, especially chapter 8, verse 58, it's clear what Jesus is claiming. And you can even skip over and look in John 18, verses 5 and 6. That's a fun one where Jesus says, Ego Imi, and the people who are listening to him fall over. So, Jesus approaching the disciples in the boat and saying the words, I am, do not be afraid, is one piece of evidence, just another piece of evidence that Jesus could be claiming to be God. But we need more evidence. So, here's our last piece. And I think this one will bring it all together. By walking on the water and by bringing the disciples immediately to shore, Jesus is doing what God does in the Old Testament. So remember I asked earlier, if Jesus was just showing off, why does he walk on the sea? He doesn't fly overhead. He doesn't swim by super fast. He walks in order to do what God does in the Old Testament. Now, Initially, as I was preparing this sermon, I had lots of texts about how God rules over the ocean. He sits enthroned over the seas. He takes the chaos that is the sea and he subdues it. There are texts about his unseen footprints passing through the waters. It's talking about the Exodus. But I decided it's too much. It's too much. And I mean, this is a side note, but Really, that's the hard, That's for me, that's the hardest part of preaching is what not to say. It's doing the cut and pasting it to some other document, which is just to say, if you feel like these sermons are too long, <laughs> they could be so, so much longer. I know that's, that's not a comfort. That's not a comfort. But instead, we're just going to look at two, two Old Testament passages The first is Psalm 107. In Psalm 107, the psalmist talks about different groups of people. He talks about people who are lost in the wilderness. He talks about people who are sick. Some are in prison. Some are sailors who are caught in a storm at sea. And in each case, God delivers them. Now, when Psalm 107 is talking about sailors who are in distress, the psalm says this in verse 25. God commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. So the sailors are terrified. They cry out to God for help. And verse 29 says, He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, 
and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. In our passage, John 6, 21, it tells us that when Jesus gets into the boat, they are glad and immediately the boat was at land to which they were going. Now, I think this is also a miracle. They've been struggling against the wind. Remember, they're still about a mile to three miles away from the shore. And when Jesus gets into the boat, immediately they're at land. Jesus is doing what God does in Psalm 107. Let's look at one more Old Testament passage. I think this one seals it. This is Job 9, verses 7 and 8. Job is speaking, and he says this, God is the one who commands the sun, and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. So that's our English translation of the Hebrew. The Greek says this. Now, I'm not going to read the Greek, but the English translation of the Greek says this. Who alone stretched out the heavens and walks on the sea as on firm ground. Jesus is walking on the sea as on firm ground because that's what God does. That's why Jesus doesn't speed by doing the backstroke. He doesn't fly. He's not simply showing his power. He's letting us know. He's letting the disciples know, I'm God. Now, just a note, Jesus almost never tells people straight up and outright who he is and what he's doing. Have you ever noticed that? Very rarely does Jesus just straight out tell people what he's doing. He doesn't say, I'm God. I'm the Christ. I've come to die for your sins, rise from the dead so that you can be justified and I'm going to sit at the right hand of the Father. He doesn't say it outright like that. Have you ever noticed that? He speaks in parables. You don't know what they mean unless you come to him hungry to know what they mean. He does that on purpose. He doesn't even fully reveal who he is to the disciples until after he's died and risen from the dead. I mention that because there are people who will say things to you like, Jesus never says, I am God. I'll believe it if you can open the Bible for me and show me where Jesus says, I am God. You won't find it. But he lets us know he's God. And it's clear. But only if you take a minute to really look. And he does it that way on purpose. Give yourself to knowing him. Give yourself humbly, hungry to know him, and you will say, see amazing things about him. Jesus is one with God. The gospel of John is out to show that again and again and again and again. Jesus is God. He's not the Father, and he's not the Spirit, but he is one God with the Father and the Spirit. He is fully God, the Son. That's what Jesus is communicating to his disciples here. Now, there are lots of applications to your life 
of that truth. You say, okay, Jesus is God. What does that mean to me? Now, as we've worked through this book, the way we've mostly applied the truth that Jesus is God is to the fact that we need our sacrifice for our sins to be God. Our sin towards God is great because he's God, which means our debt is God-sized. If someone's going to pay our debt, they've got a God-sized payment to make. We need our sacrifice to be God. That's how we've applied the divinity of Jesus mostly as we've worked through this book. But we're going to apply it in a different way now. We're going to apply it to our fears because the disciples are scared in this passage and they're glad when they see it's Jesus. So how does knowing Jesus as God help us in our fears? This is how we're going to end. Now, we should start by noticing something. The disciples are afraid in this passage. What are they afraid of? They're afraid of Jesus. They're scared of Jesus. Do you see that? It's not so much the truth that Jesus is God that comforts them. Actually, Jesus doing things that God does is what scares them in the first place. What comforts them is that this man who has the power of God is their Jesus, and he's with them. Do you see the difference? There's a difference. They're scared of him. They're scared of him exerting the power of God until they recognize it's him. It's him. The power of God is scary until we recognize that it's the great-hearted, kind, merciful, good Jesus who holds that power. So imagine you're out in the desert at night alone. I don't know why you're out in the desert alone at night. That's irrelevant to this story. But you're in the desert alone in the middle of the night. You're a little scared. And in the distance, you see a shadow move, and it's big. And it looks like a large wolf, and it's coming towards you. Now, instead of being a little scared, you're really scared. Soon, it's on top of you, and you scream. And just then, you recognize in the moonlight that it's your dog. It's your big German shepherd, Max. And he's licking your face. Now you're not scared at all. You're glad. What happened? What changed? You're still in the desert at night. That hasn't changed. The animal that was approaching you was just as big as you first thought it might be. It has big teeth, like you were afraid it might. It's stronger and faster than you, just as you feared. That hasn't changed. What changed? That big, strong animal with sharp teeth is your friend. That makes all the difference. Now, I want to point something out. When you read the Gospels regularly, People's first reaction when Jesus displays godlike power, it's almost always fear. So 
in this passage. In the other Gospels, when Jesus calms the storm, the disciples go from being afraid of the storm to being afraid of Jesus, who controls the storm. When Jesus heals the demon-possessed men who have a legion of demons, the town is terrified, not of the men, of Jesus. When Jesus heals a paralytic in Matthew, the crowd's first reaction is fear. When Jesus is transfigured in front of his three disciples, they're scared. When the woman is healed of her discharge of blood, 12 years, we're told her first reaction is fear. When Jesus provides fish for Peter when he couldn't catch any all night, he's scared. When Jesus raises a child to life in Luke 7, the town is scared. That's their reaction. They're scared because they recognize they're standing next to someone who's really powerful. Powerful enough, maybe, even to destroy them. It would be like walking into your living room, you're just walking in casually, you close the door behind you, and there's a nuclear bomb sitting on your table. You'd stop, you'd turn around, and you'd try to get out of that living room, and you'd try to get out of the city, and you'd probably try to get out of the country. Or it would be like being transported, I don't know how, to the top of the Burj Khalifa, outside. Sure, it may be beautiful, but that's not what you're concerned about then. You don't want to slip because you would die. That's what it's like for people when they're with Jesus, and he shows just a little bit of who he is, the power he has. The power of God is not safe. It's terrifying because if we're not shielded from the power of God, it will destroy us. And that's why people's first reaction when Jesus displays in a moment who he is is fear. What if that nuke goes off while I'm in the room or in the city? What if my foot slips? What if Jesus takes all that power and starts looking at my life? This is some people, something many people don't understand. God showing up in power is scary. If God showed himself to you, it would be terrifying. It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for 80 years. You would be terrified if God showed up in power. It ought to be terrifying. He is more than our senses can handle. He is overwhelming in his greatness. And if we're not forgiven of our sins, if we're not forgiven, that overwhelming greatness is against us. This is the world's problem. It's our problem. God is great, but his greatness is overwhelming to those who are not his friends. Jesus hangs on the cross like a low-life criminal as a substitute. That's what he's doing. This guy with the power of God is hanging there to buy our forgiveness. He rises from the dead so that his righteous life is counted to us. And he does that. God sends him to do that so that his overwhelming greatness doesn't destroy us. If you trust him hanging on the cross for you, rising from the dead for you, then all that overwhelming power, which you ought to be afraid of as his enemy, is now belonging to your friend, your Savior. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, 
John, who wrote this gospel, John sees the glorified Jesus. Now think about John at this point. John's an old man when Revelation happens. He's suffered a lot for Jesus. He's in exile because he loves Jesus. This is his Jesus. I mean, he feels so overwhelmed that Jesus loves him that that's what he calls himself in this gospel, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's given everything for Jesus. He wants the whole world to worship Jesus. This is his Jesus. And when he sees him, John tells us, I fell at his feet as though dead. That's what happens when you see Jesus as he is. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. So when John sees Jesus as he is, he's terrified. And Jesus says to him, listen, I'm God. I'm the first and the last. But he comforts him by saying, yes, but I died and I rose for you. That's how he comforts him. So John doesn't need to be afraid. Here's an encouragement. If you don't believe in Jesus, you should be afraid the most fearful thing in the universe is him. I don't know what scares you. I don't know what you think of as terrifying. The most fearful thing in all the universe is God when he is your enemy. But if you believe him, the most fearful thing in all the universe is your friend, your savior. And therefore, you have nothing to fear. If he is on your side, you have nothing to fear. And if you're afraid that in approaching him for forgiveness, he might blast you, he won't. He wants you to draw near to him. That's why he sent his son. That's why he sent his son. So that you wouldn't have fear to come to him and be saved. Now, let's, let's push this just a little farther. When the disciples, or when Jesus reveals himself as God, the disciples are scared until they realize it's Jesus. And he's come to get into the boat with them. Now, remember the story about Max, the dog? The animal you were most afraid of when you thought it was your enemy because it was strong and fast and had sharp teeth is now your biggest comfort. It's really nice to have Max out in the desert because he's strong and fast and has sharp teeth and he's your friend and he's with you. We ought to fear Jesus when we're his enemies, but he died for you. And if you trust him, the one who died for you, the one with the power of God is your friend. And he's with you always. This is where the truth touches your fears. I know that anxieties are a part of your life right now. I know they are. I know that you are afraid of something or many somethings right now. That's the way life is. It's the way life will be. 
God does not promise that nothing scary or bad will happen to us if we trust him. He doesn't. If that's why you're a Christian, because you think, well, I'm a Christian, therefore nothing bad or scary is going to happen to me. You're going to be disappointed. God doesn't promise that. Here's what he does tell you. The thing that we most ought to fear is his wrath towards sin. But he loves us so that he sent his only son, the one who shares his glory, to take that wrath for us. I'm really just a plea. Trust him. And that's true for you. And now all that power and energy we used to fear is directed towards our good. All of it. Jesus who loves us and died for us is in the boat with us and will be always. Listen to this promise. I mean, this, this does get really practical. This is not just like a sermon. You sit and you listen. That's nice. You leave. This is how you've got to live. This is how you've got to live in the middle of the night when you wake up scared. This is how you've got to live when you wake up in the morning scared or when something happens at work. Jesus promises never to leave you or forsake you. You're not going to get that from anyone else, and there's no one better to get it from. Listen to Hebrews 13.5. He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. When you're faced with fears about your job security, finances are tight or non-existent, when you're worried about your kids or you get a call from the doctor saying they found something on your skin and you need to come into the office, what do you do? Jesus wants you to call this to mind in the moment. He has all the power of God. He died for you. He's not going to let you go. And he's with you. Whatever comes, he will be with you. Do you see that's what comforted the disciples here? It's not that Jesus is God so much. It's that God came to them in the person of Jesus, and he's with them in the And while circumstances may or may not change the way you want them to, he will be with you. He will be in control, caring for your soul so that you have, no matter what comes, enough to be content and at peace. And then he will deliver you safely into his kingdom of everlasting joy and life. He will be with you. I mean, I often think about the moment of death. It's the great fear for us, isn't it? What's going to happen in that moment? What happens? He will be with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. That's how you fight fear. Our God comes to you in Jesus. 
and all that strength and goodness will be with you in the boat. Believe it. Let's pray. Father, you sent your Son because you love us. You are the most fearful thing in all the universe if we are your enemies, but you loved us and you sent your Son. You come to us in Jesus. You sent your Son to die. So there is no more punishment for those who trust you. None. There cannot be. Instead, we have the righteousness of your Son counted to us, and we have him with us always. Thank you. Thank you that you have not left us alone and you will never leave us alone. Until the day when we see you face to face, you still will not leave us alone. You will be with us no matter what comes, supplying what we need because you are God. You rule all things. You have purchased us for yourself. You will not leave us. Thank you that you're with us in Jesus. And it's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen.